Well, good morning. It's good to have you here. If you have your Bibles, I ask you to turn over to Genesis chapter 12. We'll be looking at verses 10 through the end of the chapter in our time together this morning. I um, was looking at a, something on the internet this week. Uh, it, it, obviously, we're dealing with the life of Abraham here. Um, about all the different kinds of phobias that we have in our day. Um, there was something like 70 or 80 lift, listed. Uh, acrophobia, fear of heights. Claustrophobia, fear of confined or crowded spaces. Hemophobia, fear of blood. Hydrophobia, fear of water. And I found one that was really interesting. It was called phobophobia. Fear of phobias. I, I never heard that one before. Fearing fear itself or something, I, 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 I suppose. And, and I don't want to minimize those things. I mean, they're, they're real challenges for, for folks. And so I, I mean, I, I certainly get all that. We all struggle with fear, don't we? Sometimes it seems more acute than others. Three o'clock in the morning when you wake up, it can seem very acute, can't it? But we all struggle with fears. The, the problem is, what do we do with it? Where do we go with it? How do we handle it? So the fear factor is a, is a powerful thing. I, I'm thinking of a, of a man and his mid-40s, nobody here, just thinking generically, who has a great fear of financial loss, and it drives him to become an absolute workaholic, and it's destroying his family. I'm thinking of a young lady who fears remaining single. And that has driven her to a very, very unhealthy relationship with a man. Do, do, do you see what I'm saying? All these things, they come at us. The question is, what do we do with them? Because that will make all the difference in the world. So we're going to look at the life of Abraham today, a story from his life. Folks, it's 4,000 years old, the story. But I think you're going to find yourself written into the story too. And I pray that you'll find hope and encouragement on what you do with the fear factor. The story opens up here in chapter 12, verse 10. Remember, Abraham is... 75 years of age, his wife is about 65 years of age, when they actually come to Canaan. And sometime in the, in the next couple years, is Abraham now 76? Is he 80? We don't know exactly. But within a short period of time after they're there in Canaan, they experience famine. Now, think about it. You're a Bedouin. Your business is sheep and goats and animals. 
You've got hundreds of people that you're responsible for that are with you caring for this, these flocks. And, and it, it's massive. And you're now in the desert area that we call the Negev. And there's famine. There's just, there's not much water there normally anyway. But it's worse than normal. And it won't do you any good to go north because there's a famine there too. So what do you do? Abraham has heard of Egypt. It's 200 miles away. You can see on the map. That's a, that's a long way. Doesn't know the language. But he hears that they don't have a famine there because of the Nile River. And perhaps he can go and keep his livestock there for a period of time. Now, some Bible teachers have argued that, that Abram, and if I say Abraham, I'm sorry, his name is still Abram, Abram, Abram at this point, so I know I'm going to slip. But. So, some scholars have said that, that Abram is sinning because he goes to Egypt. You should never go to Egypt. I, I just, I don't see that clearly in the text. I, I don't think it was, it was necessarily a bad move for him to go to Egypt. Jacob will go to Egypt later in Genesis, and it was the appropriate move. The problem is what he does when he gets there. So listen to what the text says. I want to kind of think our way through how stories typically work. There's inciting incidences, and then there's reversals. And, re and this, this is just a whopping good story with all those elements in it. So it opens up in verse 10 with the setting. Now there was a famine in the land and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was very severe. As they're approaching Egypt, Abraham, who has already been given a whole series of promises from God, hasn't he? The promise from God is, I will make of you through Sarah, a great nation. And I will give your people the land of Canaan. And it's almost as if, as, as they're moving down to Egypt, and he's thinking through all the possible scenarios, which is what happens to us, isn't it? The fear overwhelms him. And it's like God is strangely absent. Have you had that happen to you with your fear? I mean, you know you're a Christian, you know God's made promises, but it can so overwhelm us that we live as if there is no God. And that's exactly what he does here. And, and as he does it, he's going to be making a pragmatic decision that is just downright wrong at every level. But it's driven by fear, not by faith. He is faithless. In his decision-making at this point, folks. Listen to what it says. And, and, and something else. Ladies, as I read this, how do you feel if you were, how would you feel if you were Sarah? Listen to what it says. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife Sarah, 
I know what a beautiful woman you are. Now, that's a good thing. It's always a good thing to tell your wives those kinds of things. So, like, I get that one. And, and my guess is, reading as I read this text, in light of what happens in this chapter and what's going to happen a couple chapters later, she was just a very beautiful woman. She's 65 to 70 years of age. Because she, whatever. But, but she was. The problem wasn't that statement. It's what he says next. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but will let you live. So, say you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. He says, let's lie. Now, folks, just to fill in some details, it's a half lie, actually. Because we, we know from chapter 20 of Genesis that he is, Sarah is actually his half-sister. Same father, different mothers. And you, you go, well, what's going on here? That would be a whole other issue. We won't talk about that. But, it, but they do this in antiquity. I'm just telling you. I'm not suggesting it or supporting it. I'm just saying that's not all that strange. Although it seems, maybe to you it sounds a little strange. So, so she is his half-sister, frankly. But he wants to de-emphasize that she is his wife, because that's the important thing. And what he says is, honey, I want you to lie for me. Do you, do you want me to die? Because if you tell the truth, yeah, you live and I'm dead. Honey, do you want that? Do you see what he's doing with his wife? Ladies, how would you feel? Feel like, like, what am I supposed to do on this particular point? <laughs> this morning, I was over at the Huffs. We, we were there overnight. And um, um, my, my wife is actually doing a... Um, um, Tim's library just needs a little bit of tender, loving care. So Sherry's making sure that all the Old Testament commentaries are here and the New Testament commentaries are there. So, she, so I'm coming in and there's books all over the floor because the room we're sleeping in is, is there and she's working away. She was working last night and this morning she got up and worked on it again. So that, 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 that anyway. Anyway, in the midst of it, she had put a book down. It was a National Geographic magazine from 2017 and it says why people lie that was the thing that was the title of the thing i said honey where'd you get that and i said let me see that thing you know i'm thinking i'm thinking about this message and quickly i picked it went through this article real quick and 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 according to some study that they've done back in 2017 44 percent of people lie to promote themselves and they had some really funny Sad stories in that article on that. 36% of the people, though, lie to protect themselves. And that's exactly what Abram does. He's thinking, I could die. And, you know, don't you want to, like, knock on his head and say, Abram, God Almighty brought you from Ur all the way over to Canaan, and you're going to be a great nation. 
Like, you have to be alive for that. Right? But folks, when fear grips us, promises run. We don't hear them. And so, in seeking not to enter into danger, he endangers. And he, is comp- he makes his wife complicit with him. And pressures her. So, like, what else is she going to do? So he goes on to say this. Say you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. And I don't know. I'm trying to think, like, how's Sarah processing all this? I'm just saying. I'm thinking if I'm Sarah, like, oh, yeah, your life might be well, but where where do I end up? Or something like that. Now, we don't know this. But here's my guess. And I have to tell you, I'm not sure. Was Abraham thinking, they're going to get down there. One of these Egyptian wealthy men or royalty or military leaders is going to see my wife. It's going to want her. And hey... I'm just trying to cut my losses, so if he takes her, she should just say she's my sister. I can always find another wife. I suppose that's possible. But here's what I think is probably more likely. My guess is, he's thinking, I'll get down there, and there will be an Egyptian who looks over and says, Man, she's good looking. Who is she? And Abram will say, oh, she's, she's my sister. Half truth. It's a, it's a lie. She's his wife. That's what he's protecting. She's my sister. Oh, well, I'd like to marry her. Well, okay, but you know we have a whole dowry process. That, that, this, this could take weeks and months to talk through, negotiate. And my guess is maybe he's hoping there will be enough time period in that negotiation period that he and his group could just kind of slither away and go back to Canaan again. And I, I think he's just kind of thinking this will work to give us some wiggle room. That's my guess. Makes more sense. Can't imagine him just saying, hey, honey, let's just do this and I'll find another woman. Possible. I'm not saying that she wouldn't have felt that way. But but my guess is he's thinking of something else as he goes through this. Either way, it's a lie. And you know what happens? You've seen children do this, haven't you? Seen my kids, they're afraid to tell me the truth because of what they've done. They're little, little kids. And they concoct a lie which just makes everything far worse for everybody, especially for them. That's what happens to Abraham here, folks. Look at the tension that develops in verse 14, if there isn't already some. (laughs) When Abram came to Egypt... The Egyptians saw that Sarai was very beautiful, was a very beautiful woman. So, so Abram wasn't like living, you know, it wasn't like his wife was just, you know, plain Jane. And he was just, no, she was beautiful. And they saw it. And, and when Pharaoh's officials saw her, 
They praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. You know what happened? Abram had concocted this idea. I'll get down there. A normal Egyptian will see her. We'll go through the negotiation dowry process. I'll have time. He never figured this one would happen. He gets down to Egypt, and Egyptians see it, and somebody says, we ought to tell Pharaoh. Now, at this time in history, in Egypt, it's what's called the Middle Kingdom. And it's a time when they've consolidated, and the Pharaoh is the king of this vast domain. So he is the guy at the top. And somehow the message gets all the way up to him. Here would be another good woman to have in your harem. And so there's no time to go through negotiations. Hey, we saw her. Well, let's talk. No, he just took her. Because he's Pharaoh, he can do whatever he wants. And this plan that Abram came up with is unraveling. And things get even worse at one level. Look at what happens in verse 16. He treated Abraham well for her sake. And Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants, and camels. You know what the irony is? Did did you hear me mention the word well twice in this passage? In the Hebrew, it's the same word. And, And Abram, when he's pleading with Sarah, says, Sarah, do this so it may be well with me. And he's got a whole idea of what well will look like, doesn't he? This text says Pharaoh treated him well, but it was, a, it was a well that he was not anticipating. This well of giving more cattles and all those kinds of things actually created more problems for him. You know why? Think of the place you're in if you're Abraham, Abram. His wife has been taken. She's part of the harem of Pharaoh. How's he going to get her back? And immediately, Pharaoh gives him all kinds of stuff. He has no recourse. Pharaoh does him well, but in doing him well, it is not well. Do you see? How would you be thinking right about now if you're Abram? What are you going to do? Go to the most powerful man in Egypt? Try to backtrack and explain? You've been given all this stuff. Your wife is gone. You don't know the language. You have no political connections. You don't know anybody. What are you going to do? He's sunk. Humanly speaking, he's done. And the worst part is, he dug his own grave because he allowed his fear to drive him to do something that was wrong. It was all about pragmatics, and the whole thing came back on top of him. Does that ever happen to us? Maybe not to this extreme. 
where your very devising to get you out of is the very thing that gets you deeper in. The very thing to protect you from danger is the very thing that endangers you and not just you, but those that you love. And this story, if it ended here, would be a classic tragedy. Except for one thing. God. (laughs) So, Look at what verse 17 says. If you want a reversal, you always get one with God. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarai. I have to tell you, I wish I would get a lot more details in this story. Because like I read that and my mind is going a, mi- a million miles trying to say, yeah, but Lord, what, what happened here? Da, 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 you know? And so you know, I'm, I'm trying to scour every word and thought and reference anywhere to, just to try to build what goes on here. And he, here's what I think probably happened. Because what's fascinating is the very next text, Pharaoh, the most powerful man in Egypt, is going to call Abram in, and he's going to make some really strong statements, and I'm thinking, how did he find all this stuff out? Here's my guess. How did Pharaoh know that the problem came because of Abram and Sarai? We don't know exactly. But if this is somewhat parallel to what happens with the nation in Exodus, when they too are in Egypt, my guess is, Uh, Pharaoh's entire house had some plague, some disease. Matter of fact, the word plague, disease here, is the same word that's going to be used later in the book of Exodus when God plagues Pharaoh, his house, and all of Egypt. It's the same, same word. So my guess, and then if you remember, in the midst of that, God's people were protected. So my guess is here, is that Pharaoh's household, everybody got sick with something. What was that? I don't know. But it was a whole lot worse than the coronavirus. Which I'm not minimizing. But this thing, nobody was going to get out of. It was, the numbers were off the charts. And my guess is, somebody's looking around and seeing everybody has this sickness except her. So get her over here. What is going on that everybody is sick but you? And somehow in the midst of all that, the conversation comes out. Who are you? I'm Sarai. Oh, you're... Yeah, that that Bedouin... Yeah. So who is he? Why, who is he? He's my husband. Oh. The gods, and, and, and you know, in Egypt, when these kinds of things happen, you believe the gods are doing it. Not the god, but the gods. Okay, not singular, plural. And so he's putting two to two together, and he's saying, this is happening to me because of 
whoever the God is behind him. So I need to see him now. And so Abram is called in before Pharaoh. And listen to what Pharaoh says. So Pharaoh summoned, I'm sorry. So Pharaoh summoned Abram there in verse 18. What have you done to me? You know what strikes me about that statement? It's almost verbatim if you take the to me out to what God says to Adam in Genesis 3. What have you done? And it's coming from a pagan, lost Pharaoh in Egypt. What an indictment to the man of God. What have you done to me? Wasn't Abraham supposed to be the means through which blessing comes to the world? It's true, but God also said, I will curse those that curse you, right? So everything, everything's getting turned back on this guy. What have you done? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. You know what's interesting in this passage? Abram never says a word. Or at least it's not recorded. His silence is deafening. Because he's as guilty as his sin. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men. And they sent him on his way with his wife and everything that he had. And then 13.1 is just a reversal of verse 10. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had. And Lot went with him. Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and in gold. couple things. He does go back wealthy. I'll give you that. But that wealth is actually going to create some problems for him in the very next chapter. And do you know something else? There was a slave girl that Abram and Sarai received from Egypt whose name was Hagar. And that's going to come back to bite him again. So does God sweep in and do what only God can do to preserve his promises? Of course. For he is God. But that doesn't mean there's not entailments. You see? So what can we say about this passage? Here it is. While faithless fear, I'm not denying that we fear. That's not the point. It's what we do with our fear. Do you see? While faithless fear leads to pragmatic decision-making with dangerous consequences, in this passage, 
God intervenes to faithfully guarantee his promises. Aren't you glad? Where sin abounds, what? Grace abounds more. And I couldn't help but think of this really fascinating passage. Matter of fact, I'll read it in just a minute. Let, 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 let me run you through a scenario, scenario, and then we'll come to 2 Timothy 2.13. Because this is who God is. Now think, think with me for a moment. When, when, when Moses writes Genesis, Moses writes the entire first five books that we have in our Bible. He knows where this story is going, doesn't he? And here's what's fascinating. The God who sweeps in when there's no hope, when I've dug the grave for myself. The God who sweeps in and delivers and takes the person back, Abraham, the same language is repeated again in the book of Exodus. Do you realize that? Same, same language. If, I mean, if, if you, if you want to talk about... Um, Things like, well, um, weren't the, wasn't there a plague? Yes. Um, weren't uh, the people uh, under Pharaoh's control? Yes. But God intervenes through those plagues so that Pharaoh will say to the people, go, and when they leave, they will go with all kinds of things from Egypt, won't they? Now, who could pull that off? A bunch of slaves? Not on your life. The same God that did it with Abraham is the same God who did it with the Israelites in the Exodus. Come with me in your mind to the book of Hosea. Hosea will refer back to the Exodus. And sometimes the way the Exodus is looked back to is it is a reminder of God's faithfulness, and we have it. We they, they, they have they have a whole um, reminder called Passover that they that they do right to remind them of that. Hosea will also look forward to the fact that we need another Exodus in the future, and in the midst of that, there's this little verse in Hosea eleven one that says. Out of Egypt have I called my son. And that verse is picked up with Jesus Christ, who is the one who will fulfill the Passover, who is the one who also, because of the faithfulness of God, is taken down to Egypt and brought out of Egypt, all under the sovereign watch care of God who will be our Passover on the cross, all under the sovereign watch care of God. So that God could allow us to experience all of his promises when we trust in him, even when there's times along the way that we're faithless. Do you see? This theme runs Abraham, Exodus, prophets, Jesus, us. Which is why, in 2 Timothy 2.13, Paul says this. I love this text. It's a really fascinating text. I wish I could go to the verses around it, but I'll just camp on this one verse. If we are unfaithful, some of the translations will actually translate it, if we are faithless, okay? 
If we are unfaithful, he, speaking of God, God remains faithful for he is not able to deny himself. There are times in Doug Finkbeiner's life when fear grips him and my tendency is to begin making decisions that frankly are decisions made as if I didn't even know God. And I'm panic-stricken and I'm willing to sin and lie or whatever I have to do to make this thing work out. And it and, and doesn't mean there's not entailments to all that stuff. There is. But God doesn't take Doug Finkbeiner and throw him out and say, you are damned to hell now. Get out of here. I have had it with Finkbeiner. Man, am I ever glad on that one? No, his spirit sweeps down into my life, convicts me. I confess my sin. Tell him I didn't know what to do with my fear. I should have trusted him. I, I panicked. I'm sorry, God. And yeah, there can be entailments and people I have to confess to and all that, all that. I get it. I get it. But I'm his. And he loves me. And nothing will separate me from his love because I'm his child. And, and I, I won't live that way all my life because the Spirit will convict me. But there's going to be times in my life when I fall and, this, and a marvelous, faithful God sweeps in because He who has begun a good work in you will complete it to the day of Jesus Christ, Philippians tells us. God is faithful. He will take us to the end. Do you see? That's never an excuse for these it's never, because there's entailments. God allows there to be consequences, so I'll learn. I get that. But his promise to me as his child is he will never leave me or, or forsake me, ever. And if you know Christ, you can drift into sin. You can lapse there. You can make bad choices with consequences, but God will not leave you there if you're his true child. He won't because his promises are sure. So I read a passage like this, and it sobers me when I think of my own life. How easy it is to be driven by fear. But it gives me great hope because God is faithful. Do you see that? That doesn't mean if I make bad decisions that whoop, everything's gone. No consequences at all. Woo, that was great. And that doesn't work like that often. Sometimes, but it doesn't often work that way. There's entailments. But the sure promises of God will always be true. And you can bank your life on it. You know, was it FDR that said, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself? Does that does sound right to everybody? Yeah. Can I reword that a little bit? I'm going to anyway. The only one we have to truly fear is God himself. There's this really interesting passage over in Luke chapter 12 where Jesus looks at the crowd and he says, do not fear the person that can end your life. Rather, 
Fear him who is able to end your life and to cast you into hell for an eternity. That's what he says. And yet, you know what the very next passage is? God cares for you. No hair from your head falls without God knowing it. It's a wonderful text from God's love and concern because when we fear him, we fear him for everything that he is. He is majestic and holy and powerful and gracious and merciful and kind. He's all of that. And when I'm swept by my fear, I forget it all. I don't see how great he is, and I forget how good he is. And his promises are forgotten. In the uh, work by C.S. Lewis on Prince Caspian, there's a really interesting encounter between Aslan, the, the, the great lion who represents Christ, and Lucy. They, they'd been away for a while, and they're back now in Narnia, and Lucy awakes from a dream. And anyway, she, she works her way to Aslan, and they have this interesting... She sees him and embraces him, and it's this wonderful thing. But in the midst, um, Lucy says this, Aslan, said Lucy, you're bigger, because she hasn't seen him for a while. <laughs> he responds, that is because you are older, little one. And then she says, oh, not because you are? Idea, the idea is bigger? <laughs> I am not, says Aslan. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. God never gets bigger, folks. He's as big as he can be. The question is, do we get older? Do we grow? And so that whatever we face, we bring it to a God who is for us, who is always faithful and always true to what he promises. You don't, we don't want to make up promises, but the ones that are sure and secure. And we allow that to change the way we go back to our fears. And that will change everything. Let's pray. Father, so often we are fearful. And we allow that fear to drive us to do things that are sinful. But you are ever faithful. Father, through your spirit, let us grow to see just how big you are. We don't need you to be bigger. You are. We just need to see how big you are. And so for my brothers and sisters here today, I, I don't know what they're going through. Perhaps there are friends with us today who have never trusted you as Lord and Savior. Where it begins is that they would come to know you. May this be the day that they bow their knee and trust Christ as Lord and Savior. And Father, for my brothers and sisters who are here, 
who have allowed fear to drive them, to shape them, to live as if there is no God. Would you encourage them afresh with your faithfulness? And the need for them to bring all of that under your sovereign, loving watch care. And Father, that will change everything. We thank you, Lord, for the reality of the text. It talks to us where we are and exposes who we are. But we thank you, Lord, that it doesn't stop there. It tells us who, how great you are. And it reminds us afresh of the wonders of the grace that is ours because of Jesus Christ our Lord. Father, for that, we will be ever thankful. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.